the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome to yet another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you once again. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, a good amount of our, our friends from you know the internet and just kind of the CUSA journalist circle uh, talking to us about what they expect out of the respective programs that they cover for 2020 and how they're dealing with the current uh, COVID-19 situation and all that as it continues to evolve. Switching it up a little bit today, uh, Eric and I haven't really had too much of a chance to, you know, really just catch up by ourselves lately and, and talk about some of the, uh, you know, goings on around CUSA and around college football and at large. So we're, uh, we're going to do that for you guys. So Eric, it's, uh, it's good to get some one-on-one time with you, buddy. Completely agree, man. Kind of makes me long for the good old days when we first started this podcast. Just be you and I, just talking, trying to make each other laugh. You know, it's, it's nice to reminisce ever, uh, ever so often and kind of bring back the good old days. Simpler times when we were allowed to go outside without the threat of either getting arrested or getting an infectious disease. So, you know, <laughs> we'll we'll get out of it soon enough, hopefully. But um, yeah, it, it's a weird time to be in college sports for sure. And while you know we're we're both definitely in frustrating positions, being confined to our homes for the most part and working from home, uh, certainly nothing compared to kind of the budget. You know, it, it, let's call it what it is—a crisis for a lot of these smaller college athletic departments, many of which are within the G5 and figuring out how they could potentially, you know, combat the loss of revenue that has already come with the cancellation of spring sports and could potentially come if the football season was altered in any dramatic way. In the Orlando Sentinel, uh, we have uh, Mike Bianche, who, of course, many people from the Southeast will probably recognize, um, put out an article a few days ago talking about some of his ideas for how college coaches could cut the fat from their athletic budgets in order to combat the impending situation here. And, you know, Eric, I know you and I have kind of talked about, you know, our opinion of Beyonce's writing style. And while I I personally do have a lot of, you know, respect for the man as a human being, and, uh, you know, I think he's had a lot of good ideas. His presentation is aggressive, you know, at, at points, but I, I think he has some good points in that article and some points that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but I have to admit, as someone who no longer lives within the state of Florida, I don't really consume his content as frequently as I used to. Um, so if you want to start, would love to kind of dive deep into some of the ideas he suggested, because I do think some of them have merit, while others, I don't think he quite thought them all the way through. I have a mile-wide smile on my face as you're describing the self-proclaimed bulldog himself, Mike (laughs) Bianchi. Uh, uh, First and foremost, I actually got to preface this. Uh, Mike, you know, I don't disagree with anything you just said because, you know, as someone who grew up in the state of Florida, uh, primarily in the Tampa area and went to college in Orlando, I spent my fair share of time reading Mike Bianchi's articles. I've met him on multiple occasions in the same press box with him. So he's always been cordial to me. But uh, as far as his uh, his writing, he uh, he's the bulldog for a reason. He has aggressive, assertive takes. I mean, he just, you know, there's no half-stepping with Mike. He, uh, he goes all the way in. So um, as, as far as the article goes, he put out uh, a list of 10 reasons, or excuse me, his 10 kind of ideas uh, of ways to make college athletics financially responsible. And like what Joe said, I not necessarily agree with all of them. There are a couple that I did, uh, a couple of them that I thought made sense. 
I'm going to start with a simple one first and kind of work my way up to some of the more extreme ones. One that I have always kind of pondered about, Joe, and it's very rare that I get into my own uh, athletic history on this podcast. But, you know, I spent one year playing NAIA football uh, at uh, Jacksonville University before uh, continuing my academic career at UCF. And uh, we didn't stay at hotels the night before. And we didn't have police escorts and all those things on the way to the stadium. We just stayed in our dorms. And uh, when it was time on game day, we'd head to the field house, right? So he makes a point here. says, please stop having football teams stay in hotels the night before home games. And he cites, uh, according to a report by Gatehouse Media, Texas A&M spent $350 a night, I'm rounding, this is 346, at a local hotel for more than five, for, for more, for, for its more than five dozen hotel rooms, for every home game the 2018 season. Not only that, the Aggies doubled the cost by booking two nights for each home game. It's astounding that college football teams would find necessary, and this is his words, not mine, to pay for hotel rooms, catered food, conference space, buses, and police escorts for home games. I quite frankly agree 100%. I understand the reasoning for it. For example, FIU, the team that I cover, they do do the same thing. Butch Davis does have his team stay at a hotel prior to games. and They do have a police escort coming in. Now, with that being said, the police escort can't cost much because I don't know a university in the nation that doesn't have at least its own little small police force. And that's what FIU uses. They have you know, a couple of FIU's finest sound the sirens and bring the team into Ricardo Silva Stadium. However, I, I've never never really understood the reason for staying at a hotel the night before. I get it, all the pomp and circumstance of D1. If like, And Joe, I think you'll agree with this. A couple of things on this list, it just very much seems like, hey, it's the name of the game. It's the arms race. So if Team X is doing it and they're recruiting a player and we're not doing it, we don't want Team X to say, hey, we have this. They don't have that. Come here. Um, I know it may sound mundane or simple, but, you know, when you get to the NFL, that is the way it's done as far as keeping the team at a, uh, at a team hotel. And maybe that's a selling point, you know, like, hey, when you get to the next level, you're going to have all the experience of staying at a visiting hotel um, or, or a hotel, you know, not staying at home. I get it. I, I just don't get the, uh, the reasoning for the cost there. So I'll, I'll start with that one, kind of let you opine before I go to my, uh, my other two that I've got here. I want to run by. Yeah, I, I agree with both you and and Mike in in this instance that it's definitely a waste of of money to a certain extent doing what they're doing now I, the reasoning i sort of understand part of the reasons why you would want the whole team in one place in particular the night before home games right like you want to make sure that all these kids are aren't doing anything crazy you want to make sure that they're getting a good night's sleep and that they're you know for the most part away from as many distractions as possible, right? That being said, you absolutely don't need to spend $350 a night on one hotel room for, you know, for these kids. And then when you factor in that, like, you know, between players, coaches, and staff, you've got at least like a hundred people on a, a team like Texas A&M. And I'm sure it's close for teams in the G5. Like, yeah, there's plenty of other places that money could go. I mean, especially when you factor in you know the fact that all these athletes typically stay within the same dorm building anyway so there's got to be a way that you can like just make sure that they're all meeting curfew within those buildings so yeah i would i would definitely agree there's got to be a better way to do that i don't know what specifically the solution is but yeah spending some of the money that these programs do to make this happen is insane 
Absolutely. So I'll kind of just kind of combine the uh, final two here into one here for you. Um, he talked about combining certain men's and women's individual sports. I understand this, and to an extent, it's something that's already done. If you look at, for example, certain schools, their track and field programs, you know, they'll have, uh, you know, they'll have co-ed programs, but you'll have one set of staffs for that. However, I, I do disagree. He says certain or, you know, it's, it's, yeah, certain men's and women's individual sports. Um, instead of having the men's and women's golf tennis teams with two separate coaching staffs, two separate schedules, why not have one co-ed tennis and golf team? Uh, okay, I disagree with this only because of the fact that, I mean, that's just kind of, you start getting to kind of conjecture and, and being subjective as far as picking and choosing. Why would the men's and women's basketball team have each their own staff, but the men's and women's golf and tennis team do not? Um, I'm disagree with that only just because I, I think, you know, each sport is entitled to have their own staff and their own personalized individual training. You know, if, if you're going to compete at the uh, NCAA level, I think it's only fair that you know, you're not asking, A, more of the staffs to, you know, deal with double the amount of people they have to deal with, but also just as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I think, you know, not to mention, and, and maybe this is, you know, conjecture on my part or subject or subjective on my part, but uh, I don't know what the Title IX implications of that would be if you start playing around with who has what. So that's another thing there, but I, I'm not a huge fan of that. And, but I'm, I'm going to get to, uh, so hold that thought, Joe, I'm going to get to the one that I think, at least for me, is uh, one that's pretty extreme here. He says that uh, head coaches can only be signed, and this is his suggestion here, head coaches can only be signed to two-year contracts. This would, this would solve the obscene amount of money our institutions of higher learning, higher earning, <laughs> he's being cute there, excuse me, Mike, institutions of higher earning spend on buying out the coaches for long-term contracts with their failed coaches. FSU gives the example of Willie Taggart having to pay $18 million over the next four seasons, is one of the worst wastes of public money in this state since the cross Florida barge canal. Um, okay, sure. Like I get the sentiment behind it. However, you know, that just seems like, for example, if you're only signing coaches to two year contracts, for example, if you take over school X and they're coming off of a, you know, a subpar five years, you sign a two year contract and you greatly, ex you know, exceed the, uh, uh, demands of maybe what you your contract called for in year one and year two uh i just th don't think that gives uh, a coaches enough security and, and i know you're going to say hey you know uh players only have x y and z but i do believe coaches deserve a certain amount of security especially at the collegiate level granted the buyouts are insane and they, they can get paid but b also you know i just think with the way that you know let's use western kentucky for example uh tyson helton turns around western kentucky in year one uh if he's up for renewal in the next year, you probably have to shell out that money anyways to keep him, right? So I'm not 100% sure that necessarily solves that issue. So I'll let you just opine on those two combined into one there. Yeah, I mean, I guess to start with the idea of combining men's and women's individual sports into, you know, separate or into one team for, for things like golf and tennis, uh, I, I do disagree with that to some extent. For one, like I've seen schools, even at the D1 level in some instances, have one coach for like a men's golf team and a women's golf team. But, you know, again, like you mentioned, is that necessarily fair to these, you know, athletes who have worked so hard to play at the, at the highest level and, you know, get the best resources? Not necessarily. But, I mean, it can be done. 
it's just significantly more difficult than you would think or than somebody like uh you know mike would think here just because it's a lot of getting pulled in a lot of different directions because you know a lot of these teams don't necessarily always play at the same courses or play at the same events and the same time of year and that sort of thing so that's you're asking for a headache there and i mean i'm assuming he means like just have one staff but obviously you can't have men playing against women in sports like even in sports like golf and tennis it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that um and then to talk about the issue of head coaches only signing two year contracts i agree with every point you made and i'll also add that it's not fair to the players who have to sign a four-year commitment to these schools, right? Like they come in wanting to be a part of a program that a specific coach has built. And you can make the argument that, you know, you come to play for a school, not necessarily a coach that that's not really how it works. Most of the time, part of the program is your coach and the atmosphere that he creates or, or she. So you want, you want, players to feel like they're committing to a program that's going to have their best interest at heart for all four years, because they don't know who, if, if a coach was only there for a two-year contract, they don't know what the future is going to hold after that, regardless of what happens. So, you know, and granted we deal with situations like that anyway in college sports, but you're more or less guaranteeing that it's going to happen significantly more often if you make head coaches only have two-year contracts, at least based on what I've seen in the space. So yeah, I, I agree that those two instances are not necessarily great solutions to you know problems that could be presented by, by the current global climate. But I, I guess anything within this list that you want to highlight that you think makes sense even if it's a little it's you know maybe need some tweaking uh let me go back really quick because i i think yeah. for example let me just pull it up really quick uh one that that i'm a little torn on this one and i think you and i can play around with this one a little bit there's mm-hmm. there's there's two um one is putting a salary cap on coaches with this stipulation college head coaches must make one dollar less than the school president um okay like as a person i'm all about free market so but i'll put that to the side for a second i i get his point in saying that hey um the nick sabans of the world making five ten million dollars a year you can slash that down to about one million a year Uh, the major point that i do agree with is he says if saban wants to make more than one million a year (laughs) this is his words not mine then let him go fail again in the nfl I do get that, hey, you know, once you can go pro, there's another market, there's another level to be paid. However, I'm just not, uh, you know, thrilled with the idea of putting a cap on how much people can make. I'm a firm believer in that, you know, you're worth whatever someone's willing to pay you, and there are not very many. Now, granted, the whole premise of this article is if these athletic departments and, you know, universities are in financial restraints, then you have to do, you know, certain things. I just don't know how I feel about that one. And then the other one here, is a uh, disarm the arms race. Uh, do schools, you know, need to go into debt building ridiculously, ridiculously palatial facilities? Once again, I mean, you know, <laughs> to use an old phrase, don't hate the player, hate the game. I mean, those are kind of the circumstances of just where we are now with college athletics. So um, those two, I, I, I thought, you know, there's a lot of me on the bone, but those kind of 
toy with those a little bit. The one I, 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 I'll say that I agree with the most definitely is the, uh, is the hotel one that I, that I mentioned prior. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see where you're coming from on that. I'll say the one that I actually do agree with the most, I think, is regionalizing non-revenue sports. And I, I think even like the footballs and men's basketball of the world could do with some geographic restructuring of conferences because like sure. you know he he kind of provides the example of the American Athletic Conference and how travel for that is a nightmare for the most part and it is uh when you have teams like UCF, Houston, Wichita, Connecticut uh, that's so needlessly expensive and hard to coordinate from an administration standpoint um especially when you're dealing with a lot of these smaller non-revenue generating sports that don't have that big of a travel budget and that sort of thing. Um, and then if you moved that practice to uh, football and men's basketball too, then obviously that's significantly cutting down on costs. And I think it makes for better rivalries too. Like if you think about a lot of the best rivalries within sports, they're always, you know, factoring into like a geographic, you know, area, if that makes sense. Like, Michigan, Ohio State, uh, New York, Boston, like Florida, Florida State, um, keeping with Conference USA, Western and Marshall, like all these rivalries are good because like these fans live so close to each other. You know what I mean? And like, so yeah, I basically, I'm just saying that's the one I agree with the most. I think college sports in general could stand to be restructured from a geographic standpoint and playing with these conferences a little bit so that we're not, you know, sending all these teams all the way across the country on a regular basis. I mean, for like for NCAA tournaments and that sort of thing, that's a different story or like for the odd non-con game here and there. But as far as conference play goes like that, that could stand to get uh, tweaked a little bit in my opinion. No, 100% agree. I mean, I'll give you two examples. I think both of us here are uh old enough to remember, you know, when we were kids, um, young kids, but kids nevertheless, the old Big East, you know, like it, that was, let's take, for example, you don't want to use a state like Florida, right? So Florida has a multitude of universities. In theory, if you took away football and basketball, the um, non-revenue sports could easily play, I mean, quick math here, Florida, Florida State, Miami, um, Florida Gulf Coast, FAU, FIU, Bethune-Cookman, I mean, there's Two, there's a dozen schools here in Florida, right? So let's put that to the side. If it's states like Florida, Texas, California, the old Big East, I mean, just from a geographical standpoint, that was one of the most well put together conferences that I can remember um, in terms of for non-revenue sports. I mean, the, the thing it's, my memory serves me correct. I want to say uh, New York is above New Jersey, if my memory serves me correct. Now I'm going to, you know, look like an idiot here with a, uh, not be able to um, put together um, you know, like my geographical map in my head, but I believe, yeah, New York is, is above New Jersey. Yeah, it is. So like New York's above New Jersey. And then you have, you know, those other New England states there that like, those were all within, you know, two hours distance. So you made the point, I think you made an excellent point about rivalries. The reason why the Big East grew the way it did was because it created those rivalries within that Northeast area and they all were within driving distance. So I, I think that's a good point as well. Yeah. So we'll see, you know, how much of, uh, you know, suggestions of this nature the NCAA will actually implement down the road, but uh, should be interesting 
from uh, you know, just from the standpoint of fans who want to see college football survive. And if this thing continues for much longer, then you know, some things are gonna have to change. So moving on to some more general college football news, the NCAA has approved a uh, pretty major rule change um, for the 2020 season, and that's that players flagged for targeting will still be ejected from the game, but they will no longer have to go back into the locker room and be away from the team for the remainder of the game. They'll be allowed to remain in the bench area. Now, personally, I think this is a pretty good call. Like, I don't really think that, like, the act of making a player stand you know, out of the stadium or in the locker room or just away from the action in general really added that much to, I don't know, the safety of the game or I guess that's the, that's my whole thing. I don't really understand why that was part of the rule to begin with. I understand, you know, the, the getting ejected for targeting and the definition of targeting is a whole separate conversation, but in the instances of like deliberate targeting, then I don't disagree with the penalty of ejecting a player, but the whole issue of making them stand, you know, basically go stand in the corner <laughs> was kind of strange. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm good with this. I don't really think it's going to affect, um, you know, the outcome of games or anything like that in any significant way. So I think this was just a much needed change to kind of a silly aspect of the rule, in my opinion. Absolutely. I'm glad you picked on it from that aspect. I'll go ahead and just kind of use uh, some anecdotal uh, evidence here. Is when I've talked to you know, certain players who've been ejected, one thing that fans don't realize, and maybe you know, this is a minor rule change, it's nothing that's going to you know, affect the outcomes of games, like you said, but a lot of people don't realize your, your team has a huge support staff, but most of that support staff, if not all of it, is out on the field. So when you're ejecting a player, he has to go sit in the locker room alone. And like I said, I do have anecdotes from certain players who have said, hey, you know, it kind of sucks to be sitting in a locker room. And I want to make the point specifically, if you're on the road, a lot of visiting locker rooms, which I'm, Joe, I'm sure you know this, visiting locker rooms in a lot of places. I mean, if you're not playing in the uh, Alabamas or, you know, the uh, palatial palaces that are uh, palatial, you know, stadiums that uh, Mike Bianchi references in his in the article we talked about prior, visiting locker rooms are not the most, you know, comforting you know amenity filled place and most times or not they don't have tv i had one player tell me that you know he got ejected in the uh in the first quarter had to sit for the rest of the game and by the third quarter he was just miserable and bored so he went and you know he had changed out of his uniform uh put on his uh his school you know kind of like jacket and whatnot and sweats and went and found a seat in the crowd because he couldn't watch the game you know because you're not allowed to come back onto the field so he just went and sat in the stands so i just think that you know this is kind of a common sense rule especially like i said you know you don't want you know players just sitting alone it's not like in the nfl for example if you're ejected you know there's plenty of tvs and things like that you can kind of keep so occupied but if you're on the road and you know insert conference usa stadium x i don't want to you know enrage any fan base by name a specific one chances are the amenities the amenities in that locker room are not that luxurious and i guess sitting there you know made to sit the punishment enough was being ejected now it's like as you mentioned you're ejected but i'll go sit in the corner and hopefully your team wins so uh, i think it's a common sense rule change 
Yeah, I'm glad we're in agreement on that one then. So let's just move on to uh, some projection for next season. Uh, hopefully we don't really have any interruption to the overall schedule. So let's look at some projections from Caesars Entertainment as far as regular season wins for Conference USA. Um, right off the bat, the team that uh, – or teams, I should say, that are projected to win the most games out of CUSA, FAU with eight and UAB with eight. Um, I definitely think those two are correct. I think FAU is returning too much talent to uh, you know fall too much from where they were last year. Um, UAB, I think it's going to be a little bit tougher, but I do think that you know Bill Clark always does a bang up job coaching what he has. Um, so I'm interested to see what the, you know, new faces are, are going to do, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Now that guys like Garrett Marino are no longer there. Um, but yeah, Eric, anything about the projections that uh, we both have in front of us here that uh, really stands out to you? Yeah, I think most of them are pretty spot on. I don't have any issue with Western Kentucky at seven and a half, Southern Miss seven and a half, UAB eight, uh, Rice five and a half. Uh, I do think Rice will win more than that. I think Rice, I mean, obviously you can't win a half game, uh, but you know, I, I think Rice will be a bowl team this year and we can save that for later on in the off season. FIU at six, Mortal at six, Middle Tennessee, North Texas five and a half. Um, the one that I'm, I'm looking at right here, North Texas, I don't think North Texas is winning as many games as Middle Tennessee State. You and I both are high on the Blue Raider signal caller, Asher O'Hara. I think he's ready to take the next step, um, similar to kind of like what Chris Reynolds took this past year. And if he can really be the leader on that team that we all anticipate that he will be, I think that the Blue Raiders have a fair shot of going bowling just because of the level of talent they have, you know, there uh, with the quarterback position, which is the most important position on the field. And the fact that they have Middle Tennessee, and Middle Tennessee State and North Texas, excuse me, winning more games than Charlotte. Uh, I know Charlotte is losing Benny LeMay, Alex Highsmith, uh, Cam Clark, you know, guys are all in the NFL. Don't think that they're going to regress to not being a bowl team. They still return Chris Reynolds, Victor Tucker, Trey Harbison is coming in from North Texas, not North Texas, uh, Northern Illinois. He's a former two, two-time thousand-yard rusher. Uh, you know, I think I, I did mention Victor Tucker as well. So uh, Ben DeLuca was the player I was thinking of. They'll get him back from a season-ending injury. So I think Charlotte will be in good position to contend for a bowl. So Charlotte is who I look at as being wrong. And North Texas would be the one who I look at as being most wrong, according to Caesars. But, uh, Joe, I, I know you're not a big gambling guy, but uh, I learned my lesson on this. And I'm not a big gambling guy either, for the record. But I learned my lesson on this. It was at FIU's Media Day last year. Uh, Walter Vio, who covers in FIU as well for the Miami Herald, he and I both were giving our prediction for what FIU would do this year. And I think FIU was tagged at like six and a half or seven, I believe. And I, I know I had FIU winning nine or maybe 10 games. And Walter being the, uh, you know, uh, astute, wise man that he is, that's me all using all the uh, verbs I can use outside of calling him old. <laughs> Walter, do you hear this? So love you, buddy. Um, Walter told me that Vegas was not built on being wrong. So, uh, and guess what? At the end of the year, Walter was right and I was wrong. So I, I, you know, this, the, the projections I have just given you are for entertainment purposes only. They are not, uh, you know, don't take these and, you know, take them to the bank. But uh, yeah, if, if I were choosing, I would say that Vegas is wrong about those two being Charlotte and North Texas. Yeah. I mean, first of all, if you take uh, projected win totals to a bank, they'll say we're a bank. We don't know what to do with these. Um, <laughs> take them to a casino. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> dumb joke. I apologize. But yeah, I feel like. Um, But yeah, no, I feel like for the most part, these are pretty spot on. I think that uh, UTEP is once again going to be the bottom dweller. They're projected to win two games. I think Old Dominion is going to get higher than three win total, but I I agree that they'll obviously not be a bowl game as they try to, you know, find their footing post Bobby Wilder. Um, It's interesting that you think Rice is going to be a bowl team. We'll definitely talk about that at a later date. but yeah, I think the only other one that, yeah, I don't, I don't really think I disagree with any of these other ones. Uh, Western Kentucky, I definitely can appreciate how uh, they're projected to win seven and a half games. Um, I personally think they'll get more, but I think that's that's a pretty safe bet for them, um, especially considering like once again they they have kind of a tough non-con schedule, but. Yeah, I think Caesars has a pretty good grasp of of what's happening in in COSA. Um, Southern Miss projected to win seven. I think we'll see a repeat season of them of like flashes of of really good football. But you know, it, whether or not they actually come through and and break through that ceiling that they've been trying to to break for the last couple of years and win the conference USA title um, remains to be seen. But I think Caesars agrees with us in that they're very close to making that happen. So we'll see. So really quick, just a, the, what I got from that is you're saying Southern Miss gonna Southern Miss, right? Southern Miss gonna Southern Miss, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's a very astute way of putting it. Um, so with that, um, let's talk about uh, an interesting development within CUSA itself, and that's the fact that the conference is going to be one of the first ones to officially declare that media days are going to be a virtual event this year. They haven't released a lot about how this is going to go down, but basically coaches and a select number of players are going to be available to the media via Google Hangouts, Zoom calls, whatever it may be. But all of the usual press conferences that are uh, in person and in Texas are now going to be virtual. So I think on the one hand, obviously this is inconvenient because I don't know how they're possibly going to be able to like schedule all these like different zoom calls and phone calls within a a couple of days. Um, It's going to be really chaotic for all the SIDs and the people who have to handle this. Um, On the other hand, I think it presents some creative opportunities for CUSA to kind of break, uh, you know, do some interesting things from a marketing perspective, right? Like I feel like there's definitely a way to like get these coaches on like a zoom call and like, I don't know, play like Jackbox TV or something silly like that. So I'm interested to see how they pull this off because while the setbacks or not the setbacks, the drawbacks to this are obvious. I definitely think there's some opportunities to do something fun with this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you made that point, Joe, because uh, a friend of mine who um, does some writing in some high school, um, he covers high school football down here in South Florida, the FAU Owls Nest. Shane Marinelli, he made the point, kind of towards what you made, that this could give Conference USA an opportunity to be creative with their marketing and really kind of, you know, take the lead and, you know, find different ways to be able to market their coaches and their players in a way that could kind of create some, you know, a different level of exposure for the conference. And that could be a positive thing. Now, I'm going to give you my personal perspective. And for those who listen to this podcast, uh, we hope that you are listening and reading Underdog Dynasty at all times. Uh, Where it affects like 
people like me who probably would have gone out to Conference USA Media Days is, for example, I could go out there for two days and come back with two dozen stories, you know, or at the bare minimum for the sake of this podcast, an idea that I would have run by Joe later on, but since it's not happening, I can do it now. Uh, I would have asked Joe what his availability is between time X and time Y and said, hey, let's just, uh, I'm going to go uh, over to this scrum because for those of you listening, Conference USA has their media days in a very laid back environment. Literally, you know, as soon as the uh, each team do, is done with their national media responsibility, that being NFL Network and Stadium, they just sit them at a table and say, hey, you know, have at it. Like, just walk up to a coach. Like, I just walk up to Lane Kiffin today. Coach, you got time for a few questions? Like, sure. So I would have said, hey, Joe, um, you got time to maybe possibly, you know, record a couple podcasts? We can just kind of do like a radio road type deal. And uh, Joe hopefully would have said yes. And that would have been something, you know, creative and innovative that we could have done in which, you know, I could have had the laptop and we could have just, you know, rounded up player X and player Y and kept it going. Unfortunately, we won't be able to do that. Uh, and also, I mean, just the level of access you kind of get to these guys, like I mentioned, Joe, it's really unprecedented. Uh, when I was in grad school, I had a chance to cover Big Ten Media Day in Chicago. And obviously Big Ten, you know, it's a power five league. And with that, you know, comes a different level of cachet as far as their, um, the way they handle their media days. And it's just night and day from being on one side of a podium, one side of a, you know, a desk and having, you know, urban Myers of the world and, you know, the um, lovey Smiths of the world and whatnot, you know, on this like literal pedestal as they're talking down to you. And I don't mean, you know, their answers just they're literally talking down upon you as opposed to just walking up on, you know, Butch Davis or Bobby Wilder and just literally talking like two guys just having a conversation. I remember how casual it was just to talk with Rick Stockfield. You know, he was there enjoying, I, I think you had like a, a pulled pork sandwich and just sitting there having pulled pork sandwiches with Rick Stockfield. Like, you know, uh, that's pretty casual. So in that sense, I would be sad to see that go and hope that we can do that again next year. But I do agree with you, Joe. I think this would be a way to, for Conference USA to be really creative um, be able to market the coaches and the players and, you know, hopefully kind of create a way that we can still be effective as those of us who want to, you know, write stories and uh, also do some things that are cutting edge. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, personally, I'm really interested to see how they do this. And yeah, like you mentioned, and like we both mentioned, there's some fun things they can do here. Now, are, you know, is our coaches necessarily going to be as technologically capable as we would like to execute some of this stuff remains to be seen. But that in and of itself will inevitably lead to some funny, you know, content down the line. So, you know, kudos to COSA for at least getting out in front of this. And and at this point, I think having enough time to really try and, and find a way to make this thing fun and make it something special when, you know, obviously plan A would have been great as it always is, but I think they'll be able to, to figure out something, something great too. <clears throat> um, with that, let's jump into uh, one more topic before we start wrapping up. And uh, it's something sort of somber and that's related to something that we talked about at the top of the show. And that's the inevitable financial issues that are being caused by events being postponed and canceled due to COVID-19. Um, FIU recently announced that 22 athletic department employees have been furloughed through July and uh, their men's and uh, yeah, their men's indoor track and field team has officially been dissolved. Um, we saw old dominion uh, dissolve their wrestling program earlier this year. So Conference USA schools and, and schools throughout the country are already having to take steps to kind of combat the issues that this is 
uh, creating. Eric, obviously, you spend a lot of time being very close to the FIU athletic department. What's kind of the mood around there right now as they try to figure the situation out? Yeah. So, I, you know, never a full disclosure, I can't say that I've had a conversation with anyone specifically about this. I actually talked to FIU's SID Tyson Rogers literally a couple hours before this um, report from Tim Reynolds, which I want to make sure we uh, uh, cite Tim Reynolds of the AP. He's also a local South Florida journalist down here, a good guy. Um, yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to talk with Tyson about that. Um, so, I, you know, I'll have to talk with some of the guys I know. But I, it's, it sucks, man. You know, there's no other way I can put it. Uh, on a personal note, I mean, uh, it says here that 22 athletic department employees are furloughed through July. Just to be blunt, man, and I mean, Joe, you know, I know when you were in college, you know, you uh, spent some time working, you know, on that side of the deal, you know, um, going to college, and uh, you get to know these guys, man. Like, I, I know a fair amount of people, and that doesn't say who. I haven't had a chance to reach out and, and see who's affected, but <laughs> I hope I'm not betraying any confidence here. Uh, schools like FIU or schools in Conference USA, they don't have the biggest, like, support staff in terms of athletic departments and things of that nature. So you'll get to know a lot of these people. It's not like going to uh, a USC or whatnot where you have, you know, six SIDs working for football, four for basketball and so on and so forth. So it, it really sucks because, I mean, I can think of, you know, a handful of guys who, who may or may not be affected. I'll reach out to them, um, you know, when the time is right, don't want to do it fresh and see, you know, whatnot. But it, it just sucks, man, because I know these guys and, and it, it, you know, being furloughed is not fun at all luckily i you know haven't been in that scenario since the COVID 19 outbreak has happened but uh, man i mean through july i mean it's it's may 7th you know so yeah. and and who knows whether, yeah who knows whether july is the end of it you no know, hopefully it is just that and they can you know kind of recoup but i mean joe you know this these people more or less you know they're overworked and underpaid and they don't get nearly the recognition of, you know, the coaches and the players and things of that nature, but they really are the backbone of these teams. Once again, just to be frank, you know, I couldn't do, you know, the work I do for Underdog Dynasty without Tyson Rogers or, you know, Tyler Brain or, you know, Chris Santiago with Video Access and, you know, um, um, Amanda Alvarez, Diana Padilla. I mean, you see the list goes on with all the people who work. They're just on a game day, uh, whether it's, you know, all the little things they do with getting us, you know, stats. I mean, just a myriad of things that they do on game day. So, you know, hopefully none of them, them have been affected, but for those who have been affected, you know, it really sucks. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned the track and field being dissolved. That's just another thing. You know, you talked about ODU having to dissolve wrestling. So let's hope that uh, for these kids who work their entire lives to get an athletic scholarship, you know, we touched on it with the Mike Bianchi article before, and now that it's kind of left out in the wind, you know, and especially once again, Joe, you'll know this, a lot of the non-revenue sports like that, I mean, I think, for example, like women's golf or like women's, you know, some track and field sports, uh, you get players or athletes who come from all parts of the world just looking for a scholarship. You know, it's not like, for example, if you play football at FIU, 80% of the roster is from South Florida. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So just that in itself is also a, a horrible side effect. Yeah, for sure. Like out here on the West Coast, I mean, there's a lot of like small colleges in, in Oregon and Washington and, and that sort of thing. And I can tell you for a fact, I've already had friends who have been furloughed or just outright lost their jobs working in, in ops or as SIDs for a lot of these smaller schools and are just, you know, working as couriers or uh, delivery drivers now, which are obviously very essential jobs given the climate and the fact that you know, to be frank, the West Coast is is not going to reopen 
anytime soon while the the east coast obviously is more than likely going to be completely reopened by the end of the summer if everything goes according to plan but like yeah i mean i don't have (laughs) too much other insight into this other than this this sucks and i hope we get it figured out soon because i don't want to keep seeing people lose jobs like it's this is already an unstable enough industry like we don't we don't need this but at the same time you want everybody to be safe and I, i don't I'm not a doctor. I don't work for the CDC. I don't work for the government. I don't have all the answers, but hot damn, this sucks. <laughs> I, I just want this to be over. And also, I'm supposed to get married in December. I want to throw a, a giant ass party. Come on. <laughs> I, I am looking forward to you know seeing the uh, the Mr. and Mrs. Londrigan wedding bash. So that cannot be uh, a casualty of COVID nineteen. No. You hear that coronavirus? I think maybe if we yell at it enough, that that'll make it go away. Because it feels like that's the that's the approach Florida's taking. So you know what? I've tried everything else at this point. So uh, if if Florida was just yelling at the coronavirus, that'd make me feel a lot comfortable. Now you know they may or may not be shooting at it, but that's what we're in Florida. <laughs> anyway, Joe, wrap us up. <laughs> we should take coronavirus and push it somewhere else. Um, but yeah, thank you all so much for listening to the uh, Underdog Podcast once again. We'll be back with uh, some more insight into your favorite COSA teams very soon. In the meantime, uh, follow us on Twitter at Underdog Dynasty, uh, at Joe Hio underscore, at Eric C. Henry underscore, and of course, UnderdogDynasty.com every day for more G5 football content. Happy football watching, everybody. We will talk to you again very soon.